Today is one of the weirdest days I have had in a really long time, you guys. <laughs> Just so weird. So we are selling our house and we're listing it for sale by owner. So that has its own weird challenges. But I get an email. So I was interviewed on Nicole DeBoom's podcast and that's coming out soon. So that'll be fun. But while I was being interviewed, I get an email that says... Dan Harris has to cancel his interview today. And Dan Harris, as many of you know, is the news anchor that had the the breakdown live on air. And he came out with the book 10% Happier about meditation and how it kind of saved him. And I've been wanting to talk to him for years. But I get an email that says he had to reschedule the podcast. But here's the kicker. I didn't have him on my calendar like at all. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, thank goodness they're rescheduling. Because I didn't know I was talking to Dan today. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? So that was the first thing. And then I'm getting ready to work out. And I see James Altucher just joined my meeting room. And I'm like, James, he was supposed to be on last week and he had to reschedule. And I didn't get a confirmation from his assistant. So, and then I realized his assistant emailed me back and said the ninth, which is today, works fine. But we never like confirmed, confirmed. Well, he was in my meeting, like my meeting room waiting. <laughs> and here I am in my gym clothes. None of my podcast equipment is set up. And so I joined the Zoom. There he is. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what are you sorry for? And I guess he was late. And I was, you know, it's just the weirdest day. But anyway, today's guest, James Altucher, who is incredible and such an honor. And one of those guests that I would have loved to have been like super prepared for. And yet, you know, not the story today. But regardless, I have a theory that the universe and the podcast, everything that's supposed to be said and spoken always is. <laughs> and so that's part of the reason I very rarely prep questions. I, I listen and I try and hear what's going on. So it was totally fine. And then we had crazy technical glitches. <laughs> so y'all, I don't know. I don't know. But I just know that this interview was meant to happen. And here we go. So James Altucher interviews the world's leading peak performance people in every area of life. But instead of giving us like the typical success story, on his podcast, he digs deeper to find out the choose yourself story, the, the moments that we relate to, where someone rises up from personal struggle to reinvent themselves. It's awesome to talk with him and really just a great honor. And he bought my book in real time on the podcast, <laughs> which has never happened. So I love being pleasantly surprised. And he was a great guest for that. So his new book, Skip the Line, is available where you buy your books and check out his podcast. And now I have rambled enough. So on with the show. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. I've lived in the New York City area, or New York City mostly. I've lived in New York City all my life. 
uh, except for when I went to college, which wasn't that far away either. And and I love New York City. I've I've again I grew up there. All my I've I've made money there. I've gone broke there several <laughs> times over. I've, I've met my wife there, uh, and you know I'm sad to be leaving, but. There was just lo- it was, there was lots of things that went into the decision and and we really tested it out like we stayed in different places for a while we stayed in in Key Biscayne Florida for a while and just decided and this was after the pandemic after the lockdowns uh, we were in New York City for the pandemic we were in in the city for the, all the protests and and um, you know marches and things like that. But then ultimately we decided, look, you could live anywhere you want now and there's creativity and innovation everywhere. The fact that people are leaving urban areas means that not only are people spreading out throughout the country, but talent is now spreading out throughout the country. Creativity, innovation is spreading out throughout the country. There's no more one place you have to be. Like you don't have to be in Silicon Valley for technology. You don't have to be in New York City for media or finance. You don't have to be in LA for entertainment. The The world is getting more decentralized and you could basically be wherever you want. And that also applies to what you wanna do. Like everything got scattered in terms of, you know, what do I do for a living? What? How do I do my passions? Everything sort of became decentralized even with that. So you, you could choose to do whatever you want now, wherever you want, like, because everybody was left in the cold more or less, you know, during this past year, we had to yeah. figure it out. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting because my husband and I, like I told you offline, we were, we ended up in Massachusetts and we were just staring at each other a couple months ago. And we said, why are we here? Because we've ever since lockdown, the kids are in remote schooling. He's working from home. Everyone's in my office. I used to have the house to myself and I'm like, what are all y'all doing here? Um, you know, and it's just interesting. You say, you know, we could live anywhere. And so my husband's over there always scrolling. He's like, what about Guatemala? He's like, how about Australia? And I'm like, dude, like calm it down. We could do that some other time. But I mean, it is an interesting world when that changes, when your choices open up. And so I think it's cool that, you know, you're listening to it. We're listening to it. And, you know, it's definitely been a heck of an adventure. By, so by the way, you said you said your choices open up. I think we always had the choices, mm. but we were kind of um, hypnotized, myself included, that you had to be in a certain location to do what you wanted or you had or to make money or you had to work for a certain company because you had to have loyalty and, and you had to sh- it looked good on the resume if you were there for a while or you had right. to work for a company even instead of making money on your own. I mean, a corporation was the safe choice is what everybody thought. And yet 55 million people out of 120 million workers filed for unemployment in the past year. And that's a shame given that we've been told forever, oh no, corporations are are, are the safe route as opposed to trying to figure out how to make money on your own or, or corporations are loyal to you if you're loyal to them. Well, guess what? We were all loyal. We moved to a house near our corporations. We commuted to work unpleasantly to get to our corporations. And they were like, sorry guys, uh, everybody's got sick. And so we have to lay everyone off forever. Right. It's been really right. sad for so many people. It's, um, it's horrible, but the, the, the flip side is, you know, you're right. Now we're at least aware that we have more choices 
and so many exciting things have been done by people during this. And and this is not to say we all had a homework assignment, like you better make use of this time or else. Right. But, you know, I think we, whether you made use of the time or not doesn't matter, but we all became aware that our time is our own now and it's not controlled by some corporation or some government or whatever. Right. Right. So part of what you do is to interview peak performers and very successful people and, and get their stories and find out um, what what your phrase is, is choose yourself, the, the choose yourself story, the moments that we relate to when people rise up from their personal struggle to reinvent themselves and nothing more on topic than than that exact thing. So what have you, who have you talked to or, or what have you learned in this past year talking to people about their choose yourself story, especially right now? Yeah, it's interesting because basically everyone who is successful is a wrong word um, because lots of people are successful. Uh, uh, everybody who's a peak performer, who's like one of the best in the world at what they do and have been able to monetize it, has, they all have many things in common whether it's during this pandemic or beforehand, I've, I've been I've interviewed probably over a, a thousand people on my podcast and they all have figured out a way to do what I call skip the line, which is the title of my latest book. And, and what that means is whenever you try to do something unique, unique to you, whether it's pursuing a passion uh, or doing something that's, you know, switching careers midstream or even in your 20s, doing a career that has nothing to do with your education, uh, you know, finding out what your passion is and, and deciding to pursue it. Someone's always going to tell you, you can't do that. Meredith, you can't move down to Georgia. All the <laughs> You had a job. You built up a life in Boston and you've been doing this for 15 years. What are you going to do down there? You can't you can't suddenly switch from being an accountant to a sports journalist or, you know, I'm making that one up, but you can't suddenly <laughs> go from being a, uh, you know, 70 year old professor to being an astronaut. And here's the thing, any, and this is what I've noticed, not only with myself, but, but with many of the guests I've had on my podcast, but with myself in particular, is that anybody who tells you, you can't do something, it's what they're really saying. And this is not a bad thing. It's, I feel bad for them. They're saying they can't do that. Right. And, and they don't want you to change. They want you to be the same Meredith you always were and have the same relationship with them that you always had because they haven't been able to do it. And they, they don't want you to subconsciously even, they don't want you to do what you think is your dream. So they have all sorts of reasons they've rationalized for themselves that they then spew out onto you. And the reality is success is only on the other side of you can't do it. I mean, think about it. How many people, let's just take the president of the United States. How many people took what you would consider to be the normal path to become president of the United States? And by normal path, I mean, there's always considered historically, first you're a congressman, then a senator, then you might be vice president, then president. And you kind of build up, you know, you know, before and after. So probably the last person who had a traditional route to the presidency was someone like John F. Kennedy. He was a congressman, then a senator, and then president. And by the way, it took him 12 years from beginning to end of that because his dad had billions of dollars. <laughs> and, <that helps. laughs> right. and so, and so other than that, I don't really know of anybody, any president who took, took a traditional route. I mean, obviously Joe Biden took a somewhat traditional route, but he ran for president many times before he succeeded. And, 
you know, he had some time off in between these various runs. And uh, Trump obviously was didn't take any traditional route. Obama was senator for two years. And before that, he was a, you know, community activist. So he took a very odd route. Uh, Bush s- took the route of being the son of a president. That's a pretty good route. <laughs> and, and on and on. You can go through every president. Uh, nobody took the traditional path. And it's the same thing with every successful person. You know, let's take uh, as an example, uh, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, Richard Branson. So Richard Branson's biggest company was Virgin Air, his airline. Well, he started Virgin Air. He was a 27-year-old music publisher. Like that, he published music magazines, and that's all he did. And then he just decided one day, you know what? There's, I'm going to create an airline. And, <laughs> and there's no other airline. British Airways, which, was, which is a government-controlled monopoly, was the, only, was the only airline in England. And he's like, you know what? Even though... British Airways has been around since the dawn of aviation. And even though the government controls it, and so the government doesn't want any competition and they run everything, I'm going to start an airline. And and people said, you can't do that. You're a 27-year-old magazine publisher. What do you know about airplanes? And he's like, I don't know anything. So he calls up Boeing and says, can I borrow an airplane? And they're like, you can't. You can't borrow an airplane. What do you mean? You're a 27 year old music magazine publisher who has no. Ex- Have you even written on an airplane? Like, who are you? And he, and and he used persuasion skills. Obviously, he had to use persuasion skills to convince them to lend him an airplane. He convinced Heathrow Airport to to lend him an airstrip and JFK to land, or I think it was LaGuardia to land him an airstrip. No, it was JFK actually. Sorry, to lend him an airstrip in in the United States. And then suddenly he had an airplane. He had two places to take off and land and he had an airline and boom, it became a, he sold it a couple of years ago for billions of dollars to Alaska air on the condition that they never changed the name of Virgin air to Alaska air, which they did almost <laughs> immediately. And now he, now he has Virgin galactic. Now a music magazine publisher is making an airline into space. So when someone tells you, you can't do it, you can do it. Like, like Sarah Blakely, you know, started uh, the underwear company Spanx, and uh, she was she was selling fax machines door to door. She had never she didn't know how to make a, a piece of clothing, how to manufacture them, how to sell them, how to design them. She was a fax machine sales lady door to door, and yeah, and then and then one time she was at a show. She had one uh, kind of sample of what she was doing, and Neiman Marcus liked it, so they gave her something like a $300,000 order. And they said, can you do it? And she said, yes. She had no clue. She didn't know how she was going to manufacture $300,000 worth of these banks. And every manufacturer she went to, they were like, you can't do this. You don't know anything. And we can't, we can't make this and assume that you're going to sell it. Like this is, you're a big risk, but she was able to convince someone to do it. And once she made that first sale, she was off to the races. And now I gave some business examples, but I'll give an example from my own life. Like, first off, I've created businesses, sold them, made a lot of money, and then completely went broke, like down to zero several times. And every single time I wanted to make the money back or start a business, and people told me, you can't do it. You kind of won the lottery with that first business. You're never going to make that money back. And, you know, there's various ways in which I've done it. But then more recently, I decided, you know what? I kind of want to be a stand-up comedian out of nowhere. 
Like I was 45 years I old. I said that a couple of weeks ago to my husband. I said, I think I want to be a stand-up comedian. And he's like, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do it. What do you can't, you're not gonna make any money doing that. And people like, people have been doing it for 30 years and they're, they still are waiting for their first Netflix right. special or whatever, or waiting to go on the road. So I remember, so this was like six or seven years ago. Well, I'm 19, I'm, I'm 53 years old now. So maybe it was, sorry, when I was like 46. And, and that's an old, you know, the successful comedians that we all know about have been doing it for 15 to 20 years. And I remember one time I was about to do my first 60 minute show. So it was a big deal for me. It was after I've been doing it for one year. And this guy, another comedian said, look, James, I've been doing this 25 years. You can't do this. Don't think you can skip the line. And he's like, I write, I ride a Verizon truck during the day and I come out and, and do four or five shows a night. And the guy's a very funny guy, but he was driving a, a Verizon truck uh, during the day and then doing four or five shows of comedy a night. And he was a very funny guy, been doing it for 25 years, waiting for um, Verizon, his pension to start in a few years. And I remember thinking like, why is he telling me this 30 seconds before I'm about to go up and do comedy for an hour for the first time? But okay, to each his own. And meanwhile, if you, I did all the techniques in my book, skip the line. Uh, I was very much so. Long story short, I've been touring all over the world since then. I've been. I have a gig. I have gigs in Philadelphia, Kansas City, Cleveland, Cincinnati in the next couple of weeks, uh, and Miami as well uh, tomorrow. And so, uh, I, I got back from the Netherlands where I toured all over the country right before, like the day before the lockdown started here, and so. Everybody who told me you can't do it, and by the way, everybody told me, and everybody even told me you suck. And <laughs> because for to get good at anything worth getting good at, you're going to suck in the beginning, and that's part of the psychology of getting good is to to suck at it for a long time. For people to say, you know, you can't do that. Who are you? And and yet there are. It is possible to choose yourself to 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 skip the line, and people just they haven't been taught that they don't, they don't know that that it even exists. And so it's, it's a blessing sometimes to lose all your money and have to restart when you're broke and you have a mortgage to pay and, and kids to feed and you lose your home and the IRS is calling. It feels horrible and it feels suicidal almost, but sometimes, you know, a, a Phoenix rises out of the ashes. I'm yeah. more like a little crow, but at least, um, uh, at least I've risen out of some ashes. Oh my gosh. So two things came to mind um, when you were talking is I decided like eight years ago that I was going to do an Ironman distance triathlon and I have no endurance background whatsoever. Not a runner, not a swimmer, not a biker. Wow. And a lot of people like, all I heard was like, wait, you're like 230, you're a fat girl and you want to do a race that's made for thin people and you don't swim or bike or run. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm going to do. And so I did, and I did three more and I wrote a book about it. And, you know, people are like, well, you can't write a book about this. You don't know anything. And, you know, so I have been doing this in practice too, is just picking up things. And then everyone's like, why would you do that? Well, you can't do that. And I don't know if it's the psychology of people going through the hard knocks themselves that they want you to suffer. Like that comedian, he's like, well, I've been doing this so many years. You should suffer like, like I have. I mean, there's some of that going on. Like you haven't really made it until <laughs> you've suffered like the people who've come before you. But yeah. um, what my current 
um, sort of choose yourself situation is we're selling our house and we're doing it by owner, right? And so I'll, the experience of that is having everyone, all the agents in the world call you and tell you why you can't sell your house yourself, even though it's your house. Yeah. And you can, you can do that if you want to, but it's just interesting how much of our world is built around and how much of our service industry and economy is built around other people telling us we can't manage our own money. We can't sell our own houses. We can't <laughs> do a lot of things. You're so right. Like think about it. And, and a lot of this triggers cognitive dissonance. So even when we say, oh, well, you don't need to live in a city, people who have bought real estate in a city like you, your, you know, your house is for sale. Uh, people who have commitments in the city and they can't leave. Uh, and by the city, I mean any city. They feel cognitive dissonance like, well, there's no place like my place and I can't leave here. So I get it. But for instance, take home ownership. That's a there's a 15 trillion dollar mortgage industry. And that's a that's a, that's the largest industry on the planet, basically. And of course, you're taught from childhood on, you know, better to buy than to rent. And because because there's a, a huge industry that's dependent on you thinking that way. So you're taught that from your parents, from the government, from schools, from your friends. You know, there's a lot of peer pressure, buy a house. I'm not saying it's good or bad to buy a house, but you have to look at it from every angle. Like it's very good when you're making a decision to take the opposite view and try to argue it as hard as possible. Yes. So for instance, yes, there's a $15 trillion mortgage industry. So that, that must play a factor in people's decisions. Second, corporations, have an incentive for you to own your home instead of rent because they don't they want it hard for you to leave so that <laughs> so that they control when you're fired not you control when you leave and uh you know there, there there's an entire industry of you know banks lawyers accountants real estate agents plumbers electricians who all depend on a vibrant uh you know 100 million people buying a home every year or so and so it's it's you have to always college is another one during this yeah. pandemic we kind of saw that oh oh you mean college is just the same thing for the same cost even if it's only on zoom that's ridiculous it shouldn't cost the same and yet it does and why has college tuitions gone up faster than inflation by a factor of 10 every single year since student loans uh, became government mandated. And so, what you, of course, another multi-trillion dollar industry relies on people thinking, well, if you don't go to college, you're not gonna be educated. And I always ask people, well, what did you major in? And they tell me. And then I might ask them a, a, a totally basic question from what they majored in. Like if so, I met someone the other day, uh, very smart guy, started a huge internet company and, you know, very proud of his education and everything. And I said, what'd you major in? And he said, oh, I majored in European history. And I'm like, okay, well, when was Charlemagne born? And uh, Charlemagne, of course, being the most important king in European history, he united the first king in all of history and the only king to unite all of Europe. So of course, we all learned about him in high school and European history is probably in college, you learn about him all the time. Nobody has answered this question correctly within 500 years. And <laughs> I actually am so bored of the question. I usually, I have to look it up every few months if I'm planning on asking it because I forget within 500 years. And so 
look it up if you want, whoever's listening to this, <laughs> and try to guess first. And uh, my guess is you're going to be wrong. And I'm not saying this in a bad way. It's because it's boring and it's unimportant for most things. So even if you majored in it, you, you only really remember the things that you're passionate about. And it's very hard to remember anything else. The brain's got a lot of work to do. I know. See, I have an English degree and a law degree, and everyone likes to ask me what a gerund is. And I'm like, I don't know what a gerund is. <laughs> don't ask me what a gerund is. Um, but it's funny. Oh, yeah. I don't know. What it's like an adjective that acts like a verb or a verb that acts like an adjective or an adverb that acts like a verb. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I said, don't ask me. I don't know. Um, who knows? Who knows what a gerund is? Oh, okay, hold on. I'm going to look it up because I'm fascinated now. <laughs> I just remember I had a hard time in diagramming a sentences form that is derived from a verb, but that functions. So like, it's almost like the reverse of like Google. So, oh, I Googled it. That's a noun acting like a verb. Yeah. Uh, but the gerund is the opposite. It's a verb that becomes uh, okay. like a noun. Uh, oh, a noun, not an adjective. No, that would have been an adverb. Uh, <laughs> like, do you mind my asking you? Oh my gosh. I still don't understand it. Like here's a, sen exactly. here's a sentence where ask the word asking is a gerund. Do, do you mind my asking you? Is asking a noun there? Do you mind my asking like you? Do you mind? Well, anyway, the mind fine. is the verb, but see how you can just go down this rabbit hole of gerunds. They're fascinating. We're going to have to have an expert on and on the podcast and discuss gerunds, but, um, you know, one of the things, so I, to, let's go to dancing at the club tonight. Let's go dancing. Go is the verb dancing. Yeah, two days. So it's like a double verb almost. Do you mind me asking? Let's go dancing. It's a double verb. Yeah. I just made that up. <laughs> I don't remember that anywhere in my education, but that is what we're gonna we're gonna call I, it. I don't remember that either. I know it's funny. By the um, way, but, so, so if you tell people college might not be the best choice for most people, they get very very upset. Well, yeah. college, you you need college or you can't get a job. Oh, really? Google, you don't have to have a college degree. Ernst & Young, the accounting firm, you don't have to have a college degree. More and more companies are saying you don't need a college degree. So that is is not true. Well, you got to get an, a well-rounded education. Oh, really? If, if you don't remember anything, what good is it? But what if I'm interested in reading about the Civil War and Cubism and, uh, uh, you know, Sharon's. nuclear <laughs> physics? I could be interested. Then I'll remember. Then I'll remember those things if I read about them. But I'm not going to remember like if I'm forced to take uh, the Canterbury Tales in college. Like who wants to remember that? Right, right. And you know, I spent an ungodly amount of money to get a law degree, and all I could do was the 13 years I was practicing law was figure out how to get out of it. And everyone's like, "Well, you can't do that. You spent so much time." And I thought, I'm gonna. I have 30 years ahead of me if I work till I'm 65, which I don't plan to do. So I can't leave. Like I have to stay because I made a choice when I was 22 yeah, years old. Like <laughs> Where were we? Oh yeah. Like, so I planned my exit. I knew I could not work for 30 more years in the legal profession. And so it took me like seven years to get out to like, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of BS when I really look back on it, but it was because of the beliefs around my life. And, you know, I thought I had to do all this stuff, but I did have to, you know, I did plan the exit and, and buck the system, but everyone told me I couldn't do it. You can't leave. Well, you know, uh, another, first off, a lot of lawyers are in that position because, and they feel like, oh, I spent so much money on the degree. I've been building up to partner. I really can't quit now. But the reality is 
when are, if you if you don't like it, you're going to spend your entire life doing it. And then what? What's the point? Like, then you're dead. And I'm not even saying this in some philosophical way. It's kind of important to do something you love doing because if you don't love doing something, every day we have a limited amount of energy to do things we need to do that day. That's why we sleep at the end of the day is because it's hard to it's hard to do things. And, uh, you know, be, the reason it's hard to do things is because if you don't enjoy doing something, part of the energy required to do it involves uh, convincing yourself to do this. Like, oh, I got to sit down and be a lawyer today. Well, well, guess what? The people who who don't have to convince themselves because they love it so much, they will do a better job because they require less energy to actually do things successfully, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so if you don't enjoy being a lawyer, it's going to be a thousand lawyers better than you because they enjoy doing it. And so they don't need the energy required to sit down and do it. And that's really important. Yeah. Well, tell everyone about your book. Um, skip the line, right? How are we like what you did with your, your comedian outfit? Skipping the line. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah. So my book is basically, I, I was trying to figure out how do people get really good at something and particularly how do you get good at something fast? Like, so Anders Ericsson is this professor. Well, well, Malcolm Gladwell popularized this idea of the 10,000 hour rule that it takes 10,000 hours of what's called deliberate learning to be a master at something. And I, I was kept thinking to myself, well, how, how am I going to get, so the first time I, I, I needed to worry about this, I wanted to be a professional investor. I wanted to start a hedge fund. And I'm like, how am I going to start a hedge fund if, uh, you know, if I don't, if I don't, I don't, somebody even said to me, you can't do that. You need like an MBA. You need to work at Goldman Sachs. You need to do blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't, I don't have any of those things. I was a computer science major and then I made websites for a living. And then suddenly I wanted to be a hedge fund manager. And they're like, you can't, you can't just do that. <laughs> and so, uh, so it started then my, my quest to figure out like, why do always, people always say this to me? And you know, I've switched careers a couple of times. I was a computer programmer. I made, helped me. I worked at HBO and I wanted to be in the TV business. Uh, I've uh, started a company making websites. I started a hedge fund. I did all these things that everyone said, oh, well, you can't, you can't do that. And, and then when I started doing comedy, I was afraid, like, do I really need 10,000 hours to get good at comedy? Uh, I'll be 70 years old and <laughs> plus everyone was telling me you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. But everybody was upset at me, you know, cause it's, it's not going to be an easy thing to make money with. And of course I've done, I do other things too, but, uh, I decided to really explore, is it the 10,000, is the 10,000 hour rule true or is there some other thing I can rely on? And I really started examining what's made me a success in the past. What's made a lot of my podcast guests a success. And it really turned out that there was a lot of alternative ways to get into the top 1% in the world at something extremely quickly. And, and not only that, and a lot of books don't deal with this, like Malcolm Gladwell doesn't deal with this or anybody writing, anybody writing books about learning doesn't don't deal with this. But if you're going to get really good at something and you want to switch careers, you have to learn how to monetize very quickly or else you can't, you really can't do it unless it's just a hobby. And so, so part of my book is about how to avoid the 10,000 hour rule and, and get into the top 1% of any activity 
extremely quickly, whether it's making a million dollars or starting an airline or being an author uh, uh, or being a, a comedian or doing something in the sports industry. And then not only do you have to get good, but you have to get good at monetizing it. So you have to learn persuasion skills. You have to learn various methods of getting to the top of a particular industry or field, um, not just the learning, but what is this field? Like, how does one get to the top? Who are the who are the people that, you know, help, you know, what, what do you have to do to get to the top in an industry? And that's what the book's about. And it's pretty much based on my own experiences. And then, uh, like, I don't like all these quasi self-help books that are, oh, oh, academic research shows that if you if you cross your legs uh, in a meeting, then everyone else will cross their legs and they'll do what you say after that. And I've I've tried that and it doesn't work. <laughs> And, and just like the 10,000 hour rule doesn't work. Like you kind of have to, sometimes you have to experiment for yourself to see what works. And so that's a big part also is that to learn something new, it's really helpful to experiment because it's not just good enough to be as good as everyone else or be a little better than everyone else. You have to also bring something new to the table, whether it's an entire industry or whether it's a relationship or whatever you have to you have to do something with your own unique voice and style. And that's a good way to skip the line. So an example might be, I have a friend who was, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking there's so many stories. I'm just trying to think of, of <laughs> one thing. Well, well, you know, Richard Branson's and I, or Sarah Blakely with Spanx and Richard Branson with Virgin Air are good stories. Like Virgin Hair had, you know, the, the best customer service, the best seats, uh, the most convenience, the cheapest airfares for a while. Uh, so he brought something new to the table. Sarah Blakely's Spanx uh, are a way for women to uh, seem thinner than they are by wearing these kind of tight uh, un underwear. And but like uh, another friend of mine during this pandemic, he was uh, a bond trader for J.P. Morgan, and he thought that's what he was going to do for the rest of his life. But he didn't really enjoy it. And what he really enjoyed ever since he was a kid, like he enjoyed sports. But he's not going to be an athlete. He's in his 40s. And I could say you can't do that, but he said it himself. He wasn't he didn't even really want to be an athlete at this point, but he just loves sports and he but he worked in the finance industry. So during the pandemic, he had a lot of free time and he started a an email newsletter about uh, interesting stories in sports that has have a finance component. So, for instance, uh, an example might be the Super Bowl that the halftime show was done by this musician named The Weeknd. And the weekend, it turns out he wasn't paid to do the halftime show for the Super Bowl. And not only wasn't he not paid, but he spent $7 million of his own money to produce the halftime show. Why would he do that? Turns out Beyonce also did that. And Maroon 5 also did that for prior Super Bowls. Why did they do that? So this guy went through the financials of that Super Bowl halftime. And then what happens to these bands or singers afterwards and why it was a good decision for them to do what they did. So I've never even read a story like that before. And so very quickly by intersecting two areas where he was competent at sports and finance, he now has a newsletter with 27,000 subscribers. He quit his job at JP Morgan where he traded bonds and he's going to do this for the rest of his life. Something he loves. He writes the newsletter. It's called huddle up. He writes that newsletter five days a week. It's a great skip the line story. He went right to the front of the line, uh, not only on sports, 
well, first off, he became number one in the world for writing about the intersection between sports and finance. And he's, he became, he's clearly in the top 1% of the world of, you know, people making a living from sports writing. It's probably in the top hundred of the world. And yeah. so that's a very exciting thing. And that, that's a classic story where it's not somebody famous, but it's just someone who just in the past eight months skipped the line completely in sports writing and became among the top in the world and does it. And he was just a regular bond trader. He, there was nothing special about him. And I think I think everybody in the world has the capability of doing that. Uh, and I, I just know from my own story, like I've been so down and out at different times. Like I've been so stupid when it came to like managing my own money, particularly the first few times I made money selling a business or whatever, I would just blow it all. And I had to figure <laughs> out, I had to figure out what am I interested in doing now? Like, how am I going to, what am I going to do with my life and how am I going to support my family? So I had to switch careers like five or six times and not only get in the top 1% of that career fairly quickly, but also figure out how to monetize it. And it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell everyone, I assume they can buy your book wherever books are sold, but um, unless that's not true. <laughs> No, usually it it's everywhere. true. Yeah. Usually it's true. Um, but your podcast, cause I know your podcast, that's how I found out about you. So tell everyone about your podcast, um, and where they can find that. Yeah. So my podcast is the James Altucher show. You can find that anywhere where you can find podcasts. And, uh, yeah. And my book, uh, that just came out, skip the line. It's got basically 23 different techniques relating to learning things super quickly in particular, I describe how you can use experiments on your life to quickly skip the line. But then also I talk about how do you monetize once you skip the line. So I talk about, you know, basically about a third of the book is all these different ways to monetize. And I've helped a lot of people do this. Like for a while I was pitching a, um, this is one last story. I was, I was pitching a TV show uh, and it was called, I will make you a millionaire. And I basically would take any random person and within six months, either make them a millionaire or on the path to millions. And uh, all the TV networks loved it, the idea, but they were afraid to take a chance. What if I didn't succeed? And they filmed this whole thing and spent millions of dollars and it didn't work. So it didn't really work. But I, I am going to do it as an experiment to show how, how the techniques in this book uh, work. So I'm going to- I will be one of your subjects. I'm random. Pick me. All right. You're, you're <laughs> random. Maybe I will pick you. Random, random enough. You just met me. It's fine. Well, what, oh what my gosh. Do, what are you going to be doing in Georgia? What are you, what are you going to be doing for a living in Georgia? Um, so my husband is still doing the same thing for a living. I write books and I coach and I, yeah, that's, that's what I do. And I podcast, you know, I go, it went from being a lawyer to writing books and podcasting. So totally different lifestyle, not making millions. So, you know, but, but I bet you, you could get on the path to that. And oh yeah. Uh, so we'll I see. bet you too. And yeah. I've got my third book proposal ready to go to my, um, my editor next week. So I would love to experiment with my third book. <laughs> Let's the, do the, it. What's the third book about? Well, so it is, it's going to be called the suck line and it's a time management concept I came up with years ago that basically it does away with your to-do list and you take everything that really matters and it goes above this line you draw and everything under that line while it's on a list, everything under that line sucks for a period of a week or two. And then after two weeks, you get to move it up. So it's a time management system for really busy women who are like tied to their to-do list as like some sort of albatross around their neck. So it helps you manage, but it helps you keep your priorities 
things above the suck line never fall below. So like, what, what, what if there's important? a priority that you never get to the suck line? What if what? What if there are always things that are higher priority than the suck line? Well, it doesn't work out that way though, because the things that really, really, really matter to you are very small. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. You know, right. Because like when you take women, women are like, my to-do list is crazy. But when you cull it down, it's like, where is your health on this list? Where are the people you love? Like they're nowhere to be found, but then your to-do list just continues to grow and you never accomplish anything. So things from the to-do list, like getting your hair done, taking the dog to the vet, going to the dentist, those go on the list at some point. And at some point they have to go above the suck line because it matters that you take your dog to the vet. It matters that you go to the dentist, but how do you manage that to-do list? And so I'm cre I have a system that I've got to flesh out in this book about how you do that based on your dreams, your oh, priorities, the people in your life. And it's sort of a sequel to my other book, my, my last book, The Year of No Nonsense, which is about eliminating any nonsense in your life and finding what really matters and what really matters fits in, fits in a nice little small box. It really does. So uh, that, that's really interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to read the book. Uh, what, uh, I'm going to look on Amazon right now. Maybe I could pre-order. I will send you a copy. Well, I am, I am buying right now the year of no nonsense. Don't buy it. I'll send you a copy. No, authors, <laughs> authors deserve to get, to get paid. So, uh, well, that is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me on this podcast. <laughs> in real time oh my gosh again Meredith thank you so much for having me on your podcast and oh thank um, you it was so fun I appreciate it thank you for joining me on this episode of the same 24 hours remember to rate review and share this podcast it really matters I appreciate it see you next time